today's episode of Stuff That Matters, we give some love to a fellow Rock Hill, South Carolina member. Katie Durkee, the Marketing and Outreach Coordinator at NAMI Piedmont Tri-County, joins us on the show. For those that don't know, NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's an organization of families, friends, and individuals whose lives have been affected by mental illness. Together, they advocate for better lives for those individuals suffering from a mental illness. Katie explains how she was impacted by mental illness as her children experienced hardships at a young age. She dives more into her background and how she first learned about NAMI as an organization, tragedies that she was faced with in her personal life and family, the state of mental health in this country as a whole, and more. We also discuss the 2023 NAMI Walks, which is the 10th annual and will be held this Saturday, October 7th at 9 a.m. at Cherry Park in Rock Hill. This year, New Hope is proud to be the presenting sponsor. To register for the walk, visit namiwalk.org slash Piedmont. Again, that's namiwalk.org slash Piedmont, P-I-E-D-M-O-N-T. Or to help raise awareness, visit namipiedmont.org. Now, please enjoy the passion and the message of Katie Durkee. Some local flair on stuff that matters as fellow Rock Hill community figure, Katie Durkee, the Marketing and Outreach Coordinator at NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Piedmont Tri-County, joins us. Katie, thank you so much for giving us some of your time to have this discussion today. Yep. Thanks for thanks for inviting us. Good morning, Katie. Good morning. Uh, yeah, thanks again for your time and thanks for all you're doing. So, you know, we got a lot of different directions we can go in, but why don't you start with just a little bit about your background, um, who you are, what brought you to NAMI, and you know what 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 fuels your passion to improve our mental health system. Oh, that's a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> Five minutes, please, or less. So, um, yeah. So uh, many many years ago, I um, found myself uh, in need of resources and information, and. Um, I had uh, two children who were having some mental health challenges and we had moved here specifically because of the school district, right? So we moved to this area because of the school district, because it was the best in the nation or in the, the, the state. And it seemed like a great move for us. But what I didn't recognize was that my children didn't fit that mold. So for me, it um, I tried very hard to adjust to that uh, situation. And um, in the meantime, while I was grappling with my children's mental health, then I started um, trying to find resources and information and see who could help them and where we could go. And there wasn't that much out there. The best that we could get at the time was speech therapy and occupational therapy and those kind of things, but we couldn't really address their mental health. And I did find play therapy at the time, um, but that again, didn't really get us where we needed to be. So along the way, I was struggling with all these kind of things and flying backwards and forwards to Italy because that's where my family were. And um, I got a phone call one night while my children were both in a uh, a special uh, a speech group um, summer camp and uh, my brother had died by suicide. And so that was kind of like my first big, wow, this is real. This is reality. This is like... This is not happening, but um, so we kind of flipped very fast, jumped on a plane, figured all that out, came home, and it occurred to me that I needed to do more than I was doing. It's like this, my whole world kind of blew up. And so um, I still couldn't find what I needed. And then fast forward, my son was eight. And again, another hospitalization, another we don't know what we're doing. And I was calling everybody I could call and I was crying and people were kind of like getting embarrassed for me. And, you know, you're over the top. And But Betsy O'Brien picked up the phone from NAMI. And so uh, I kind of started just laying everything out for her. And she said, oh, we can help you with that. I recognize that. I have a similar situation. I'm going through something similar myself. I've been through it. My child is like 10 or 15 older than yours. I work for NAMI. 
this is what we can do. And they signed me up for something called a basics class. And that was a six week um, class that my husband and I both attended. And it explained all these systems and how they came together. It explained communication skills. It explained um, how you navigate school systems. It explained how the brain worked. It explained how medication worked. It had all these answers to all the questions that I was desperately rabbit holing at night at three o'clock in the morning. And so um, she spent about an hour and a half on the phone with me. And nobody was spending that kind of time on the phone with me, right? Nobody, everybody was like, well, you've got to go here or you've got to refer there or you've got to go see a doctor. Or you've got... And so there was a lot of piecemealing that I was trying to put together without any roadmap. And what Betsy and Nami were able to do was give me that roadmap. And that was so important to our journey. And believe it or not, that's when, I mean, truly our lives started to turn around for our kids. I was able to navigate those systems better. I knew who I was asking for. I knew why I was asking for those things. I knew how to talk the talk. I knew what the acronyms, acronyms meant. I knew the communication skills. Things started calming down in my house. Um, it's not been an easy journey. I cannot say it's easy today, but we are in a place where I really never expected to get. I really didn't see this future for ourselves. I really saw something very different. And um, I should, sh I will also share that, um, and I don't say this so people feel sorry for me. I say this so people understand that this is not um, an easy navigatable system. So my father-in-law in 2019 also ended his life through suicide. Knowing all the things that we had been going through and knowing the things that I know and the things that I tried to reach out and help with and um, the resources that I had at my fingertips, we didn't react fast enough and get as much in place as we should have done. So what drives me and what drives me to stay at NAMI and what drives me to um, continue what I'm doing I have two children who live with mental illness. I have my own journey through that when I was a younger child. I lost my father-in-law. I lost my brother. And I don't really want anybody else to have to navigate that by themselves. I cannot solve their problems, but I can hold their hand while they go through that stuff, like Betsy did for me. So that was a very long five minutes explanation. But that's how oh, I got it. Uh, no, that was, that was incredible. Yeah. Um, I could I could listen to your story all day and and, and I, we feel honored that you share it with us. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I've known you now for a little bit. We connected after I came to New Hope, and again, I just think um, anybody who knows you, Katie, just knows that you are, um, uh, you know, you're just on fire and you cannot be stopped, which is good, which is what the system needs, particularly systems that are slow to change. Um, so I know I love it, and, I, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, you know, it's interesting katie i've talked to you a number of times over the past i don't know how many years and i don't know if i've heard that i don't know if i've heard that introduction and it yeah. it was it got me right it got me um it's clear that you're all in and and the passion's there and it got me on a variety of levels just this morning i've probably taken four phone calls from parents looking for services it's, it's really not ours they're looking for, by the way. They just don't know what they're looking for. And so this morning, I've probably spent, this isn't about me, but I've spent time helping those parents with questions that they should be asking because they just don't know what they don't know. And um, and I'm the other, you, you know, I think I've shared with you that I've helped a, a family member access services. And I tell people all the time, I feel like I have a well, you know, some knowledge around this. I work in the system and it was still a kick in the pants for me to get him connected to services. Mm -hmm. And um, the basics course, I feel like just I'm going to walk away from this podcast going, I got to take this basics course and I've got to be able to get people connected to the basics course. I knew when we were launching this podcast and you were going to be a guest. I knew I was gearing up for this. I am so excited that you're on here. So there was no question there. It was really just me reflecting how um, how this just this five minutes has been helpful for me in my brain. And it's going to turn out to be very helpful for a lot of folks. I'm so excited about this. There's some parts of your story that I'd love to zoom in on, but maybe just start with what is NAMI? I don't I don't think typical folks out there around the day to day know what NAMI is, even though it's a massive organization so just tell us 
what is NAMI? Yeah. yeah, who is NAMI? So it's interesting, isn't it? Because I didn't know either family connections who are super helpful and I'm very grateful for put me on to um, the cell phone number of Betsy from NAMI and said, NAMI will help you. And I'm like, who is this NAMI? Who is this person? Um, NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. We are the largest grassroots organization in America and it's dedicated to supporting, advocating and educating people about mental illness, but also families, friends, loved ones, and everybody who lives within that system. So we are the support piece. We're the people who go and hold your hand. We're the people who uh, try and pull the resources in. We give you the information. We have um, a wealth of information on all our websites. There are local support groups. There are education classes. And our goal really is not to be um, psychiatrists, therapists. We don't prescribe, we don't diagnose, we don't do any of those things. In fact, we don't even mind what diagnosis the person has, or even if they're diagnosed. If you feel like you need to get more assistance for your mental health, if you're feeling anxious or depressed, or you live with a serious mental illness, then we have something that will support you. Um, and education classes to support the people around you. And then also the advocacy piece, because as Matt said, that's you know, that's kind of where my passion lies, because if we can educate the world about this, then um, you and I might may not get so many phone calls that leave us feeling very inadequate. Right. So, um, again, we can't solve it, but we can hold people's hands as they go through it. So NAMI's on, there's not NAMI's national, but it's regional. Can you just, you know, how does that all? Yeah. We, we're in 48 states, so you can find us in 48 states. We uh, have 600 affiliates. So I'm an affiliate. I, li I, I work in an affiliate. And that means um, if, you, if you think about, um, so we have a national organization that is very focused on building programs, evidence-based programs, uh, data, statistics, legislation, uh, the help for handcuffs, the 988 number, those kind of things, mental health parity laws. And then we also have state organizations that really focus more on the big programs that need to be statewide, like um, crisis intervention training and End in the Silence program, our Go Line Green program, the programs that are really on, you know, across the state and um, focus on um, the top level of education piece. And then we at the affiliates, uh, we have Lancaster, Chester and York counties, and we cover things like... Um, education classes for parents, caregivers, for um, churches, for businesses, for, um, uh, you know, we're in the community, we do health fairs, we do health um, events, we do um, things like the Strawberry Festival, we'll do the, the, the Rose Festival in Lancaster. And our goal really is to distribute as much resources and information as we possibly can. And then we also let people know they're not alone. I have been through this, I've lived with this, this is my journey. It may not be exactly the same as yours, but I do understand that desperation and frustration and, um, you know, just knowing what you don't know. And then we also offer those support groups. So our support groups, we start now at 14. So we have a 14 to 17 year old support group. And then it really goes on from there until, um, you know, you can be as old as you want to be and join one of our support groups and you can fit in whichever one fits for you. Um, we try and do them on Zoom. We do them in person. Um, so they're as accessible as possible. And so that's really our role in the community. We are educating, advocating and supporting at the local level. And then we go in stages from there. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, um, funding for NAMI, is that through... We are so well off, it's not even funny. No, so we, <laughs> we really do. Um, so we're not the, um, the glamorous side of anything, right? So we're not really um, not glamorous, if you like. But so we have uh, the funding sources that we really rely on are our local community, which sounds, you know, a little bit of a dichotomy because aren't they the people we're supposed to be helping? Well, yes, um, they are. And we do, you know, focus our efforts in the community, but it's through sponsorships, through golf events, through our walk that we have in October. And in fact, our walk in October is our major source of funding. So that's where we raise um, pretty much our operating budget for the next year, we hope. So um, we're all part-time employees, which does help. We're very, um, we're very good with the money that we have. We try and, you know, be very um, diligent with making sure that we're providing the services that we provide 
on the limited amount of funding that we have because um, you know we're, we're cognizant that that isn't a constant stream. We don't get very large grants. Um, we, we're always going after grants, but um, again, it's not something that uh, is a constant stream of income. We're not getting the um, you know NAMI NAMI uh, dot you know NAMI in um, the 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 United States NAMI has a different source of funding than the state national than the state NAMI organization, and then we have a different source of funding as well. So we're self-funded. But that okay. was a long, long way to say we rely really on donations, sponsorships, and um, you know events that that benefit us. That's really where most of our funding comes from. So, Katie, in your description of NAMI, you mentioned a couple things that got, grabbed my attention. I know enough about them to be dangerous, but you talked about uh, crisis intervention training, and you talked mm -hmm. a little bit. You know, you mentioned the crisis line number, the nine eight eight number, and so I'm. I was hoping you'd share a little bit about those two things because I think they're such important aspects of our of our communities that that probably not a, not everybody knows about. Yeah, and it's 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 um again it's a strange situation for me when I found out how the system operated for people who live with mental health uh, diagnoses or not diagnosed, and they are in crisis, especially when they're younger and you don't really know what's going on. Um, and you call 911, often you'll get a police officer, right? And that to me was a little shocking. Um, I didn't realize that was the system until I realized that was the system. And so I know that, you know, we need a better system, but NAMI covers some of that by doing this crisis intervention training for, um, for police officers and frontline workers. And what that is, is it's a five day class that runs, it's about a 40, 40 hour class. It's a very comprehensive in-depth class. And the police officers will come and sit in, um, you know, in the office and we try and make it entertaining. The, the, the person who runs that program here in South Carolina, Sherry, um, Sherry Cloud is just phenomenal. She's an ex-police officer. She came out of the academy. They do give academy training credits for that program. And the police officers get to hear from local providers and people who are working on the ground and um, then they learn more about mental health and mental illness and what that may look like versus what people perceive it looks like right and so our goal with that really is to have them come to a location when somebody is in crisis and understand in that 30 seconds that they have to, to decide what's going on to think wait this could be something other than what I think it is um, and we do, we finish off the week with personal stories. And then we, the last day we do actors. And if you ever want to sit in on the last day, let me know, because it is so enlightening and so cool to watch. And I will be honest with you. Most police officers are very kind, caring, nice people, right? A lot of them have family members. A lot of them have children. A lot of them um, maybe, you know, have gone through this themselves. And so they already kind of have this idea of, um, I, I'm dealing with this daily. I see this out there. I'm a smart person. I know that there's more going on. What can I do? And so they, they really embrace that. And it's been enlightening for me to watch them kind of do those scenarios with the actors at the end where they really treat those people who are acting. Uh, maybe they have a diabetic situation and they're acting like they're maybe on drugs or maybe they have bipolar disorder and they're acting at a manic uh, state or maybe they have schizophrenia and they're acting out um, you know, paranoid schizophrenia and the police officers interact in those scenarios as if it was real life. And, and they do a phenomenal job. They do such an amazing job. But what that means is when you call them and you call 911 and they come to your house, nine times out of 10, if you have a crisis intervention trained officer, they're going to work that case a little differently. They're going to be more cognizant that this may be a manic episode and they will use their de-escalation skills that they learn and they will put some of these other tools in place um, and, and be creative and kind and, you know, de-escalate the situation rather than the way we typically would stereotypically think that would go. So they've been really good um, at embracing that. And that's a nationwide, that's a nationwide uh, project um, alongside that, NAMI Piedmont Tri-County got a grant through um, South Carolina Department of Mental Health and SAMHSA to fund a crisis app. So for our area, we actually have this crisis app and we're one of um, three states that has that app. So you can go to that app and you can look up um, 
you know, crisis intervention. You can, the, the, the HOPE screens you, the, the HOPE um, South Carolina screening tool is on there. Um, there's a lot of different resources right at their fingertips. And, and the idea is that they can just completely um, anonymously text, text resources in the field to the family members that they're with. So that's, that's a really um, kind of nice segue into that. And then when we talk about 988, 988 has been something that everybody has been pushing for. And I know you and I have talked about this and the numbers yeah. of people that actually know what 988 is and are using 988 is not what we hoped. So while it is super successful in the 90 something percentile of keeping people out of the hospital it, uh, when they're in crisis, only 17% of people know about it. So those 17% of people are actually swamping that phone that phone system. Um, you know, they're, they're already porting record numbers of that. And I would have to go and look at the statistics to look. But um, yeah, it's a very underutilized resource. So, you know, we, we personally say to people, look, start with 988, call 988. They will talk you through that situation. And you you can stay anonymous if you want on 988. They, they, they're not going to come to your house. And I think that's a fear that everybody has. I don't want to call that because it's like an ambulance. They think it's like 911. But right. not it's not like that. It's a, it's a, you know, you get routed to the call center that works for your, it goes on your phone number. So on your, you know, area code, it's going to route you to that number. And then um, they will often talk you through your situation. They will often be able to de-escalate that situation and get you to a place of um, a little karma and then give you a plan and give you ideas of where you can move forward because um, that's what they're trained in, right? That's their goal. Their goal is to keep you out of the ER. And then if you do have to call um, mobile crisis after that, or you do need to call 911, then at least they have already laid the groundwork for you and you have a plan in place of what that, what that's going to look like. And then when you call, if you have to call 911, you can just say, can I have a crisis intervention trained officer? Can I have an officer who understands mental illness? This is a mental health crisis. This is not somebody who is, um, you know, combative and homicidal because they are an angry person, right? So um, just, again, that knowledge, you don't know what you don't know. Once you realize that this is the system and this is how the system works, then it makes it a lot easier to access those systems. So yes. Again, long answer. Sorry. No, no. It's what well, it, you know. I know. It feels like the crisis intervention and police piece has is really taken off for the last five years, and and I'm I'm actually hopeful and optimistic. You know, flash forward ten years from now, that is just going to become a normalized part of our system of care, our broader system, which um, again, ten years ago was not happening. That didn't happen. You know, the cops just went out. Some cops. Um, had enough discernment to understand what was going on and a lot of them didn't. Um, so no, I think that's a wonderful thing for us as a, as a nation, honestly, that's a really good thing. And 988. So 988, I think it rolled out last summer officially, right? I think it was last June. I think yeah. the um, was last, it this June? last June, I think it's last June. And I, I, re I read something on it recently. I know the first you know six months, I think were pretty, bad. I mean, pretty abysmal. I think a lot of 988 centers weren't even staffed. I think yeah. particularly our neck of the woods, kind of in the Southeast here, it was really poorly done. But I did read some things that were pretty encouraging in terms of the numbers are growing basically month over month. People utilizing it month over month um, is on the increase. Again, I think every state, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, but I think every state got to choose how they did 988 so every state did it a little bit differently. And then also the way that states funded it was very different. And again, you know, we'll, we'll zoom in and out of national versus the Carolinas. But again, I think South Carolina um, seemed to drop the ball on 988 pretty significantly. It, it was an interesting scenario, right? It's like um, we're going to federally mandate this number. We're going to give it to you. The FCC was involved. Um, it was federally mandated for that 988 number to become the crisis line. I think a lot of people were confused that it was going to be like a 911 system. I mean, um, it makes that's obvious, right? That seems obvious. If you don't live in this world, then it's like, oh my gosh, we're getting a 911 number specifically for you know mental health crises. Yeah. But um, and so I think maybe that was a little bit of the lag in the delay. Um, I think you can still find on GoFundMe a GoFundMe for the crisis center in Greenville, which I think oh. is you know, interesting. It's yeah, awesome. yeah, that's not I great. Think somebody, set that up as uh, 
I'm not sure why they set that up, but that was interesting. Um, but it was underfunded. But now there is government funding and there is, you know, state funding. And I think it was just that kind of, um, you know, delay in, oh, this is, you know, this is a great resource and this is something that we can actually divert from. And this is, you know, I think it just took a minute for people to organize. And I think that's true for any new system, right? I mean, it's like, imagine trying to set that system up and what that looks like. And, um, you know, I know that the, the suicide prevention lifeline became 988, but I, I feel like there's a lot more people calling a crisis line than if you call it a suicide prevention lifeline. Mm -hmm. So we call it suicide prevention lifeline. What they really meant was you, it was a crisis line. You could call when you were having a hard time, right? But um, people really utilize that in crisis, suicidal crisis situations, where they thought it was suicidal or homicidal. That was really when they were calling that number. Um, and I think 988, the, just the perception was different. So, um, but going back to your mobile crisis teams, which are not really connected to 988, but um, 988 came in, we got a mobile crisis team, uh, that's going gangbusters. They're making changes to that. There's going to be um, peer support, I believe, on that as well, which I think is like amazingly brilliant. Um, so there is there are definitely like the the forward momentum is I don't want to say exciting because that sounds strange, but it's good to watch that coming into play because you're going, okay, there's a resource and there's another resource. And and what we didn't have access to before, you know, people would call Mike, they would call me, they would definitely, you know, call you because you were in a different uh, position before. Right. So we were the ones answering those questions. Now they can call 988 and 988 can say. And then we have screeners as well. South Carolina Department of Mental Health has that um, Hope Connects You screener. Um they have some good tools on their website as well, which I don't think a lot of people know about. And so that's part of our goal as well when we're out in the community to say, you know, 741-741-988, um, Hope Connects You, um, the, um, you know, the warm line, the teen line, I mean, uh, Seven Cups, there is a lot of different resources there for free that you can utilize. You just don't know if you don't know, you know? So anyway. Right. Yeah. You mentioned peer support and, and talk about why that's important. And, you know, I imagine we'll have some listeners who might not even know what, what, what that is. I'm sure they can kind of take a guess at it from the, from the name, but can you talk why that's important to be added to that, you know, response system? P peer support specialists. I love peer support specialists. Those are people who typically live in recovery, um, who are, um, because we know recovery is very possible, right? We see people all day long, every day. One in five, one in four people, one in five people live with a mental illness. Uh, adults, one in six children live with a mental illness. And post pandemic, it's a report of one in three reporting some kind of disruption to mental health, right? So um, anxiety and depression, depression has spiked uh, drastically and so has anxiety. Um, so there's a lot going on. What a peer support specialist does, and they have, pretty in-depth training. It is a two-week course, which is like, oh, okay then. But it's a very in-depth two weeks. It is a very long, in-depth two weeks. Um, if you already live with this mental health condition, you understand it from your perspective. If you're in recovery, you've probably accessed a lot of the resources available to you. Uh, you know, medication, uh, therapy, psychiatrists, neurologists, um, you know, the other tools that we have in our toolbox, like nutrition and exercise and journaling and all the other things we talk about, you've probably used a lot of those tools. So um, you're in recovery, you go and do this class and then you can become a peer support specialist. And South Carolina Shares does that program here if anybody's interested. Um, the peer support specialist going out is able to kind of recognize a little bit faster um, what's happening. So when somebody's manic, um, you know, in having a, a manic episode or somebody is in psychosis, it can look like a lot of different things. It's not automatically assumed that that person is in a mental health crisis. And the peer support um, is able to kind of navigate that situa situation a little better, but also say to that person, look, I've been there. And that's what I was saying about the handholding. You know, often we cannot solve problems, right? We cannot if somebody is in a mental health crisis, we can de-escalate, we can use the tools at our disposal, 
But the truth is that person is feeling all that emotion, all those feelings, all that. Um, and a lot of that is shame and embarrassment and frustration and anger and confusion. And there's a lot of things going to that. There's a lot of feelings there, right? That we just say that's mental illness. And it's like, okay, it's much bigger than that. And so if somebody comes along and says, look, I've been there, I, I, I've been, you know, I've been in your situation. I, I get those feelings of, you know, feeling ashamed and feeling embarrassed, but you know, there is hope at the end of the, the tunnel. There is, you know, we've got to get you through this crisis because there are tools available to you to help you get into recovery. Um, know that I've been there and I, you know, I've walked this path and I'm willing to walk it with you. And that's kind of huge. I mean, that's what Betsy did for me, right? Right. I would imagine that you have immediate, tr not immediate, but trust building and, you know, a little bit the comfort level of the individual needing services or needing some assistance probably goes through the roof of peer supports present. And my guess is it's most, that's an adult service, I would imagine. Like, is there a peer support model for teens or no? So I have personally um, used a peer support specialist for my teenagers. Oh, okay. Um, so I found somebody in Colorado who understood OCD from a very personal level. And um, she's a national speaker and she's on our website. She's on our resource um, and she did definitely help. Uh, she helped my both of my teens understand because they both live with what they call pure OCD. So they don't, you know, my daughter will laugh and say, my room is a mess. Come see my room. It's a mess, right? That isn't my problem. Um, so they have these intrusive thoughts, these ruminating thoughts, these rituals that they have to do um, because their brain tells them to do that. And that can be very confusing and very debilitating. And some of the things that go along with that pure OCD can be pretty graphic and scary, right? And mm -hmm. so you start to believe that you're um, not the person that you believe at your core to be. And so mm -hmm. she was able to help them just even from that perspective, understand that you are not your thoughts. Um, you know, this is something that is happening to you. This is not something that you are. And that was so powerful for them because I could say that all day long and they would say, but you're my mom, you have to love me, right? And so her being able to talk the talk and tell them some of her experiences um, and how to kind of, how she's navigated some of those things and some of the things that she thought took a lot of that shame away from them and took a lot of the fear from them. And that really truly was a, a big deal for us. And so it may look different at a, at a younger age than an older person. An older person is going to be more like a, um, you know, a pretty stay connected, connect with them weekly, even daily sometimes, right? Sometimes people need that daily support. Um, but for, for a teen and adolescent, it'll look a bit different, yeah. My wife working at New Hope is to provide students with support in the social, emotional and academic aspect of their life. My why for being here is because these kids need somebody to hear them and see them. My why is I've been in the communities for so long with the residents, now I get the opportunity to work with the families and meet the families. My why is I like to help. I think I was born with that in my nature, so I like helping. I help everyone in the building as well as our residents and their families. My why is a because I want to create a safe environment, a comfortable environment for my students to be able to learn and grow. I put smiles on kids' faces that I love seeing every single day. I am at New Hope because this is a place that inspires change for young kids and for adults. I'm here at New Hope working to make a difference in these young girls' and boys' lives, giving them an example of what a role model should be and leading them and guiding them in the right direction. My why for being in New Hope is the residents. I love the kids. It's awesome. My why is seeing the change and the process being made. It's just awesome to see them come in, not want to be here. Then they get here, it's like being a family. Oh. Kudos on you. It sounds like you went and found your own peers. It wasn't necessarily there. It's not like a network of people, but you went and just made it happen because you knew that your kids needed somebody that had credibility and they needed to hear a voice that wasn't your voice, probably saying the exact same words, but it, sometimes it, it lands differently. So, Kate, you know, 
you mentioned, obviously, you know, we see it all the time. It, it feels like mental health stuff is getting worse or it certainly got worse during COVID. Sometimes it's hard to know, did, you know, did it get worse or did we just expose things that were already there? Are we normalizing it? Are we talking about it? Are we, and, and there's really no easy way to tease that out, but what, what, what has you encouraged about the state of our mental health system and where we're going um, right now? Like what's going well, what's getting traction? What are you feeling good about? Cause you and I talk a lot about the things that we don't yet have that we want. That's where your my brain, you know, my brain goes to all those things. But what has you encouraged right now? So, yeah. So I think for the pandemic, personally, this is my personal thought on this. A, we were all locked in a house together and we just recognized those maladaptive behaviors, if you like, or those coping skills that we were like, wait a minute, you know, that's not a good coping skill. That's not a positive coping skill. It's like we need, you know, we need to do something about that because that's, you know, but when somebody's out at school all day or out at work all day and then you come home and there's two hours and you tend not to recognize that so much, right? But when we were all locked in our houses together, it was like, oh, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is not going well. I'm not doing well. Um, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing this. So I think that highlighted for us. I also, in a weird way, think the pandemic helped mental health. So what do I get excited about? I get excited about the fact that people now recognize that this is not a choice. This isn't, this isn't things that people do because it's fun or they like to wind other people up or because they are just, you know, naughty in general. Yeah, they enjoy making life difficult. And I will go to Dr. Russ Green. I don't know if you know who he is, but, um, you know, he always says children do well when they can. And I think everybody does well when they can. I think we all have that. It's not just children. I think it's all of us. When our life is moving in a positive direction, um, you know, we tend to do better, even if we have these other things going on. And so it kind of imploded and we all went, oh, we're not doing well. And then those of us with kind of those coping skills that weren't the best acted out. Right. So that highlighted everything. And the Surgeon General, I don't know if you had known this, but the Surgeon General in 2019 issued a, um, you know, uh, a warning about um, it was he um, what do they call that a state of emergency or um, uh, I can't remember what that word is, but he had said, you know, children's mental health in 2019, we should be concerned about this. This is going in the wrong direction in 2019. So I think it was largely embraced by us all but not by many and so the pandemic he said that the pandemic happened and everybody said oh my gosh mental health is going in the wrong direction right and I think we recognize it more and I think that we're more uh, tolerant and more compassionate and more empathetic to it because it's happening to us and so I think that that makes me happy and excited in a weird way. And again, I have to be careful when I say happy and excited when I'm talking about mental illness because it's not. No, yeah, but sure, encourage. Uh, it's, it's it's not a. It doesn't seem like it's an us versus them thing. Yes. Or illness is that thing that those people. Those you know, people have. Right, right. You know, the right. facility up in the '50s. You know, up on the hill that nobody talks about. Now it's like. Um, yeah. All it's more of a spectrum. So that that's got you encouraged. Um, yes. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, and, and and so so why am I encouraged by that? Because when you recognize the problem, then you're looking for solutions. Right. And then the collective looks for solutions when it's just a few people looking for solutions. It just seems like, hmm, you know, they're doing good work. We like them. But now it's a collective. And I love that so much because I think that's where we start moving forward. Community for me is the biggest missing piece for all of this. It's like the community needs to embrace everybody, um, warts and all, right? Not just, you know, subsections. We have to embrace and work within communities. We have to work within challenges and differences and, um, you know, all the things that we know to really build like a strong community. Well, I'll, I'll say it's not, this is a little bit of a cynical comment, but I do think it just is true that, on the advocacy side, on the policy side, on the government side, stuff doesn't usually happen until something happens to a politician's family member. Right. You know, it's like, um, I don't really care about that issue. And then, well, actually, my nephew committed suicide. My, my niece is struck. Now I really want to dial into this, which um, is human nature, though, right? Again, because we, we're, we're wired to care about what's in our immediate sphere and and block out things that are that are not so. Um, yeah, so I think probably it just feels like exposure. A lot, a lot of sunlight's been put on these issues over the last couple of years, which is what your whole 
organization's mission yeah. is. So, yeah, and and actually, we we've been here since. So this is our twenty eighth year here, um, and I don't think that we have ever been this stretched. Yeah. So in this yeah. busy thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is a constant stream. It is a constant stream. My phone will typically ring, you know, nonstop that takes care of Lancaster and Chester. She has the same, you know, we could be, we could be out 24-7. I mean, we literally could be out 24-7. Judy's pushed, you know, that these are some of our team members. Our team members all have very full loads. Uh, you know, we don't get a lot of time to sit down and just drink coffee together. It's very rare that you know, one of us, all of us are in the office. It's very rare that all of us are in the office because we will all be out. Um, and so if you think Robert, myself and Jennifer will all be out on the same day doing different things. I mean, think about that. It's a lot of, it's busy. It's yeah. busy, but it's getting better, right? People want us to come and talk about it. People want us to come right. and discuss it. People want us to bring the resources. People want to know these things. And before that wasn't the case. And so there's, there's that flip and with that flip is going to come solutions. I, I'm a hundred percent positive that the landscape next year in this area is going to be very different than the landscape today. And I don't think that's one person. I think that is the community that has done that. I don't think it's just NAMI. Um, I think it's everybody at the table has said, this is not okay. You know, we got to do things differently. And I think, everybody in the community has come together um, to, you know, change that system and change what's happening. And, and I, I mean, how can we not be happy about that? Well, you know, even just in a small snapshot of building on what you just said, I mean, we've had a couple activities, more than one, just that little new hope there and the cross section of community representation that you have, or that we've had attend is encouraging. You know, we have local politicians, we have police, fire, we have NAMI, we have school, we have DSS. So just in that small snapshot, I don't think we could have said that a few years ago, right? We didn't we didn't have all those local community representatives coming together to break bread or celebrate something. And so in that small snapshot, I, I couldn't agree more that you're seeing the community kind of coming together for issues around mental health and mental illness. So, Katie, on the so that I, I love what you shared about what you're encouraged about. What still needs to? What are some of the glaring? And you can go national, you can go local. What are some of the the big needs? What are some of the things that um, we still don't have access to broadly that we need to to have a better mental health system of care? Okay, so my, just my personal opinion, of course. Um, I have um, a manifesto. No, I do not. But yeah. I uh, I feel like. Um, First of all, we need to start on the ground. So those peer support specialists are super important, very, very big part of our community. When people have lived the experience, they bring a, um, you know, a different take on the situation and they make um, a very difficult situation seem more tolerable and more achievable to get through. Um, I think that uh, in-home care is seriously lacking here. I don't think we should ever be considering sending a mm. seven, an eight, a nine, a 10 year old outside of their family systems to get the family system all on one page and care in the community. I feel like that is a huge missing piece. And I have, you know, we had somebody at one of our meetings who said they are moving in this direction. We're excited about that. I'm hoping that New Hope will do what they do in uh, the other state and maybe consider doing some of that as well. I feel like that is happening in other places. And I feel a lot of calls from parents saying, I just need an in-home behavior. I've been, I've been approved with my money for this. Where do I find them? And it's like, you put an advert out and you train them. That's how you find that person basically. Um, and that is not what we should be doing. It takes a specialized person to come into somebody's house, navigate all those systems and bring everybody together. And honestly, if we change the foundation for some of these kids at six or seven or eight, imagine how different they would be coping and the foundations would be at 12 and 13 and 14 when things really do get very difficult for them. Um, I also think that uh, we need partial step-down programs. I'm a big fan 
of um, partial programs because when somebody can go home at night, they have their family support, they have their friends to support them, but they're also getting the treatment daily, the hand-holding, the, the, the things that they need. I don't think that the insurance model works in our favor. I think two weeks is very abusive. I feel like they dangle a carrot and then pull it away. I've gone through that fight many times myself. It's like, give us three more days, give us 48 more hours. Please stop making them justify this. If they feel like my person should be here, please accept that they're the experts and they're talking and the knowledge is there. Those, those people should be here. It shouldn't be down to the insurance company to decide if they have exhausted their insurance, then they have to leave. They should finish their treatment plan and then they should leave. That does not happen in mental health. It does, you know, people can stay in cardiac rehab and physical rehab and those other places as long as it takes, but not yep. for mental health. And then I think that just the crisis units, I mean, just if I could have utilized a place where I knew my, my child was safe and I could take them and help them de-escalate and have their med adjusted or have a new medication or have a doctor just say, we're doing, we're, we're heading in the right direction. This is a blip. It's okay. This is going to be okay. Stabilize them for 24 hours or 23 hours, if you like, you know, um, that would have made a big difference. So what do we have in your county that covers that, especially for children? Yeah. Yeah. On the local level, I, you know, I think, um, on the local level, we don't have a lot of what you said, obviously. Um, and even statewide, we don't have a lot of what you said. But, you know, to boil it down, even for folks who might be listening who aren't inside the space, if I, if I had to summarize what you just said, it's that there's a lot of parents out there who either because they truly don't have access to the resources or maybe they just don't know about them, basically go from my kids either got a counselor or it's so bad that I got to take them to the hospital. Right. And then he gets discharged from the hospital in three days, he goes back to his counselor. But then he tries to beat me up on a Saturday or hurt himself or run away or, ask, you know, and we go back to the hospital or we call 911 because and then 911 shows up and maybe it's not a mental health um, informed police officer. And they say, I don't know what the heck to do with this person. We're going to drive him to the hospital. And so that that still that pattern still exists far more than we want it to. And the solution to that is there's all kinds of different stages of care in between those things um, that could prevent the need for the hospitalization. I totally agree with you on the in-home. Uh, my, my career started as doing a lot of in-home work and I loved it. And I don't, those are kids that if I was seeing that same kid as a therapist in an office, I would not have been able to move the needle at all. There was just too many layers. And when the family needed me, it needed to be in real time and it needed to be in their living room because it's different to actually experience a crisis with a professional than to come to an office and talk about the crisis that happened last night. Right. Very different, very different thing. Um, so yeah, I, I think everything that you're saying and you're spelling out again, hopefully these things will keep, I think other States have got this figured out. Obviously I know that you're not going to rest until um, you know, our state and our community has a lot of these resources, but this is not necessarily new stuff. There's some places that have had these resources for years and it shows that it works. And um, we just got to keep getting people to care about it. Great. It, it's, I, I don't even think it's funding, honestly. I think for us, especially, we get caught in the trap of Charlotte is very close to us. Right. But I think it may be very close geographically, but time-wise, it is not a close place for us. Uh, it's also across the state line. So your insurances can be different. And then, you know, Columbia, well, there, there's hospitals in Columbia, there's hospitals in Berea, there's hospitals in Sumter, there's, you know, Charleston. But it's like me as a parent with a nine-year-old, I, I don't want them three hours away from me, right? I'm still their mom. Plus, we have to bring this into play as well is I had to change what I was doing, right? I right. had to change my, my way of my way of parenting was not working. I ended up paying people to help me navigate that and change the way that I was parenting. But I needed to do that because honestly, I was not helping my own situation. And even though I, I was worried, I'm like, well, they need boundaries and well, they need consequences. And, and they absolutely do. They 100% do. But the way I got my kids a little bit further forwards was to 
you know, I had to, the, the, the taking things away and things were not working for me. The star right. charts, the stickers, none of that was working for me. And time all out. The, all the classics, all the classics were not. Yeah, I would be exhausted. I would watch Super Nanny. I'd think I've got this. <laughs> yeah. And I would be sweating and exhausted and crying and he would be crying and she would be crying. And it was terrible. And when somebody finally sat me down and talked to me about trauma-informed care, Bruce Perry, big fan of his, Dan Siegel, big fan of his, um, Love and Logic, big fan of that. I brought it all in kind of into my house, Karen Purvis. And I was like, oh, wow, my life could be easier. Now I needed to go and find all those things. But if somebody says to you, look, if this isn't working, try this. If that doesn't work, try this. It's okay, right? Your child is not destroyed and ruined if you say yes one day to something that you typically would say, give me all your stuff and no, right? And knowing how to put those boundaries in place without causing further distress and um, explosions was right. huge in my house. Huge, huge. I so, think you're, you're, no, I love it. When your super nanny analogy is, yes. is actually on, on point though, even though that show is, um, you know, oh. probably makes it, probably makes it look a little too easy. But I think the, the thing that's important is like, it does come in and it says, hey, this is a system issue, right? This is not always just a kid issue. Even if things like, you know, like OCD, these are very organic, these are brain things, right? So, um, but it's also brain things that can either be helped or hurt by our reaction to the brain thing. So, um, and the fact that she went into the home, like again, she went into the homes and it's really hard to change our habits. It's really hard to change our behavior. Most of us just parent the way that we were parented. That's our default. So it actually do something different and build different muscle memory it takes a ton of support mm -hmm. and a ton of accountability. And um, so, no, I think that's super nanny, you know, I mean, that's, that's somewhat what in-home counseling and therapy, it looks a little less judgmental. I think that lady was pretty rough, but it looks a little <laughs> bit like that though. You have to get in there and get the whole family involved. It also takes not to jump, cut you off, but it also takes an open mind and some awareness. And my yeah. guess is, it takes some desperation too, right? Yeah. And and that goes back to a little bit about the, the, the mental health system, in my opinion, so reactive rather than proactive. And it's hard for me to talk to a family who needs services. They want to come to New Hope. And I, when I ask them what services they've had, they've tried outpatient therapy a few times, but my kid's refusing to go. And although in that moment, they think they their child needs to come to New Hope, I spend a lot of time talking parents out of, look, <laughs> you don't want your child to go out of home to New Hope, which provides a very high level of care uh, because your child refused to go to you know, outpatient therapy a couple of times and is failing the sixth grade, right? There's There needs to be those steps in between what right. they're seeing in New Hope. But the nanny thing was great. Katie, what would, um, you know, if you could go back in time you know, to when you were a parent again and and didn't know what you didn't know, like how how much of a game changer would things have been had a Betsy gotten into your life years before she did? And can you again just to get back to the personal bit? You know, what was it like being a parent with kids that and, and with not knowing what is happening with my my children, other than I know that they are struggling and they're hurting, and you don't know where to turn? Can you just share that a little bit? Sure, I think. Um... So I, I think I want to be very clear here. I'm not judging families. Um, and I feel like we feel very judged. I think that's the other piece. We feel like we're doing it wrong. We feel like we've, you know, we're doing, we're doing everything wrong and it must be our fault. We, we feel that very strongly. So we get very um, kind of defensive and, you know, all the feelings that our kids are having, we then start having those feelings and it becomes a, you know, a very difficult situation. And so, um, I think for me, honestly, when I look back, I wish I had just stopped. I honestly wish I hadn't have. Um, I caused a lot of extra stress to my children by trying to resolve the things in a non-productive way. I'm just going to put it like that. So yeah. some of the things I was instructed to do were not the best. I mean, he should never, I should never have followed the Ferber method for sleep right? It works for a lot of children. It really does work for a lot of children. It did not work for my child. But I was told because he had these sleep problems, I was told that's what I had to do. Well, my mm. kid, you know, was only a baby or a little kid, you know, maybe less than a year old. And I would 
hold the door shut because he was very, very good at getting that. I mean, he was from a very young age, he was very good at climbing and clawing and falling out of things. So um, I would sit and hold the door because they said he has to stay in his room. You have to make him stay in his room. He has to learn to self-soothe. Well, let me tell you, my kid never learned to self-soothe. Never. I know <laughs> the things I think now that I think then I think, oh my gosh, like now I wish somebody had handed me a book on, I wish somebody had given me Bruce Perry's book right from the get-go. I genuinely wish that had happened for me. And that was kind of like, I read the boy who was raised as a dog at some point. And I thought, Hmm. This is interesting, you know, and then I've gone on to read Bessel van der Kolk and all the other people. Right. But that was kind of like my very first look into that, into that kind of world. And I remember being at a um, conference, a love and logic conference. And he said, you know, I don't worry about most kids. The most, the kids I worry about the most are the kids who don't sleep. Right. So I just told you, I was trying to verbalize like, that was my kid. Right. I would, and so that kind of set my panic off. And um, if I had have met Betsy earlier on, if I'd have took that parent, you know, that parent course, if I'd have had access to some of the other people I admire, like Eileen Devine, and watched her brain first parenting model, I think I would have had the knowledge. I think I would have understood that the brain is far more complicated than I realized. And there's more than one way to approach parenting. And if I could have known that right at the get-go, I think it's easy to say I would go back and do that, right? But I think that I I was a pretty strict parent. I expected please and thank you. And I expected meal times at the table. And I expected, you know, the food to be cleared off the plate. And I expected my kids to, you know, be dressed on time and to, you know what I mean? I was expecting a lot of that stuff. I was expecting them to go to school on time. I was expecting them to be polite to adults. And I was expecting them to behave in public. And a lot of those things didn't happen for me. And I was like, what am I doing? What, 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 is, what am I doing? What are they doing? What am I doing? How, how can I not get a handle on this? And everybody else's kids, of course, that's not true. But I'm thinking everybody else's kids are doing this. And, you know, oh, my gosh, again, Super Nanny comes in two weeks later. These kids are a dream. It's like, why can't I do that? You know, and so I would have put less pressure on myself, less pressure on the children. And I would have understood that this was a medical condition. And we were in a very long journey, not a, not kind of a, you know, perfect. And there was no Instagram and Facebook at the time. So, um, you know, there were listservs and those kind of things. So, you know, I, I wasn't able to get that information. So. New hope, our name, our promise. Founded in 1987 by Dr. George Orvin, New Hope has been a beacon of hope and healing for youth across the country for decades and is committed to expanding our impact across the Carolinas and beyond. At our flagship 150-bed treatment facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, we provide 24-7 residential behavioral health care to male and female youth with significant mental health challenges. Our team of behavioral health care experts deliver comprehensive care in a safe and structured environment. When a youth enters our care, they are often at the lowest point in their life. They've endured years of trauma and rejection. They have accepted a narrative that their life is hopeless, that they are destined to repeat a cycle of despair. That's where we come in. We are here to provide new hope to every youth in our care. New hope through therapy that breaks down walls and builds up their self-worth. New hope through teachers and education tailored to their unique needs. New hope through round-the-clock medical staff ensuring their physical health. New hope through recreation, play, and new experiences that develop life skills. And new hope through the healing power of positive relationships with every one of our team members. We break cycles. We rewrite life stories. It's our name. It's our promise. We are New Hope.
So, Katie, uh, one of the reasons why we had you on today is to highlight and promote the 10th annual NAMI walk uh, on October 7th. And uh, so I'll give you the chance now, and for lack of a better term, I guess, walk us through the NAMI walk, when it got yep. started, the success it has had, and what it has meant to, you know, bring, raising more awareness uh, for both NAMI and, you know, in the community as well. Uh, just, just, you know, walk us through the, the NAMI walk. So, so this is our 10th annual for Rock Hill. It's our first so you, you have to say inaugural, right? You can't have your first annual. You have to have an inaugural, inaugural walk inaugural. for Lancaster. Inaugural walk for Lancaster. So we're super excited about that because um, Jennifer started uh, last year and she has stormed into Lancaster and she's very, very busy. And they now um, have a very clear idea of who NAMI is and wanted to support us. So um, a lot of the, you know, the big sponsors over there, Nutramax and um, Oceana Gold and um, some of the, we have many, many sponsors on our website from, from Lancaster and uh, Indian Land specific. Um, they really wanted to support and we wanted to support them in the community, right? It's not just about us, it's about raising this community. And so um, we said, yeah, let's go do it. Jennifer's like, I'm up for it. I'll do it. Let's get it done. And so um, it's going to be an exciting, very chaotic day, but this is really our funding for the full year next year. So um, I think we're $130,000, $36,000 um, big shout out to you guys. Super helpful. Super. We can't tell you how much we appreciate what you do a in the community, but B for supporting us. Um, the changes are pretty fantastic. Um, and so we want to recognize that and, um, yeah, the 134, 30 days to go, uh, show up and just, you don't even have to raise money, right? You don't even have to raise money. What you have to do is come and say, look, you know, we support people. We understand people live with these mental health diagnoses. It's okay. It's, you know, you're still part of the community. We're part of supporting you or we, you know, need that support. We have tables for our community partners. So people like Affinity Health Center, um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, they will all be there um, to hand out information, to get the resources into the hands of the people who show up. We'll have the coffee truck. Um, you know, we have a lot of fun on the day, but really it's about getting that full year of our uh, budget in place so that we know that we're going to be able to do everything that we want to do. Well, we, we are happy to support you guys because we love the work you're doing. Last year, I think we had about 50 people show up. We did have a typo on our T-shirts. <laughs> trying not to repeat that this year. So we put we put Mike O'Connor. I just want to make sure it's publicly known. Mike O'Connor is 100% responsible for anything that happens <laughs> with our T-shirts this year. There'll be two typos. I'll go above and beyond last year's one typo. Yeah. Yeah, so and I don't think anybody knew about it. And we caught it the last, last second. Yeah. It didn't hurt the event, but... Um, our CEO noticed and, and I said, oh, gosh. right away, <laughs> right away. four it's seconds into the T-shirt. Yeah, It's those kind of things that really, you know, you're in this big world of like you're, you're full deep feet first into these situations, you know, yeah. and then somebody points out that, oh, you do yeah. know that you've got your A yeah. and your E mixed yeah. up, right? You spelled, and walk like, with, you spelled walk with two Ks. That was not that was a bit of a mess. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, 17 people could have looked at that and they've been in the middle of right. the whole situation. Uh, and, so it's, um, it's, um, yeah. No, we're, so. look, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be an awesome event. And, and again, you know, New Hope too. Like you said, we just consider ourselves another part of the community. We are a cog in this wheel and in this system and, um, and we all need to play our part. So no, we're, we're pumped about it. We are. We're excited. Thank you. And I love, you know, the Kevin Hines thing. I know that's, again, I have to be careful how I phrase these things, right? Because it, I have to be careful. But Kevin Hines for me is such an inspiration. He is so, um, I have followed him for a long time. I feel like he is, you know, the beacon of hope for, for me when I was in the darkest yeah. of the moments, he was a beacon of hope. So, um, you know, to, to have these speakers come in and then invite us all to come to them. I just, it shows like a different level of commitment. It's like people are in very hard places, very hard places, but there's hope to come back from that. But also again, it's that community thing until we work together as a community, as a whole layer, we don't make as much progress. We have to make progress together.
Well, as we wrap up here, tradition on this podcast, Katie, I'm going to ask you now, uh, and I guess th- this could be from you, from Katie Durkee, or speaking on behalf of NAMI, uh, just, you know, for you kind of encapsulating, you know, your overall message, what is the stuff that matters? You know, people matter. That's it. That's all we have to think about. Community and people matter. And when we just stick with that, that's it. That's the whole statement. People and humans matter. Community matters. I love that. We should change the name of the show to the people that matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The people that I, matter. I think that would be, yeah. yeah. Wow. That was, but, that was yeah. awesome. Thank you. Katie, thank you so much for thank your time. You. Thank you for all that you're doing for the community. Um, and again, I, you know, just want to again say thanks for sharing your, your story, your personal journey, but also using that to, you know, I love that. And I didn't know that about Betsy. I didn't know that. That's so cool. She's, um, um, she's a special person. The fact that she was that to you, I, I can't imagine how many hundreds of people that you've been their Betsy to them. And then those people are going to be that to somebody else um, too. And um, I think you can use the word excited about some of this stuff. I think that's okay. I, I, so I think there's there's reason to be excited and encouraged. The work is not done, but um, man, I feel encouraged the fact that you're out there doing what you're doing. So. Yeah, ditto. Ditto. I feel the same way. I feel like I mean, I think Mike said very briefly, he said, our small little, but it's like you have such a huge um, impact on so many kids every day. And so even though New Hope, is a, it's not a small, it's not even a small building. It's such a big part of Rock Hill. Um, and it's such a big part of getting these kids to where they need to be because the kids you have really need that from somebody. And so I feel like, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I get very, again, excited about watching people solve these problems in a really positive way and i feel like that you guys have jumped in and done that so i appreciate it very much yeah i think well i think there's big things coming in the coming years for just the system in general it's an exciting time to be i think a part of this space so agree agree yeah great job katie thanks katie thank you sir Thank you. You can listen to this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch episodes on YouTube. And if you're interested in being a part of the New Hope mission, please visit newhopetreatment.com for more information. Again, that's newhopetreatment.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.